as the data mounted, we really saw that being incarcerated was a risk for contracting COVID. And nationally, we saw that people who were incarcerated were at risk not just of contracting COVID, but of dying from it. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Governor Phil Scott has said of Vermont's COVID-19 response, quote, We have consistently used data and science to guide our decisions. But when it comes to following public health guidance, the governor appears to have made an exception for one group, prisoners. The CDC recommends priority vaccination of correction staff and incarcerated people at the same time, quote, because of their shared increased risk of disease, close quote. And last month, Vermont's COVID-19 Vaccine Implementation Advisory Committee called on the administration to, quote, immediately amend its vaccination policies to provide access to COVID-19 vaccines to all incarcerated individuals in its care. The Vermont Advisory Group includes more than two dozen health care providers and advocates. But in March, Governor Scott refused the guidance of the COVID-19 Vaccine Implementation Advisory Committee despite an outbreak of COVID-19 at Northern State Correctional Facility in Newport, the state's largest prison, where 179 inmates, more than half the prison population, were infected, along with some two dozen corrections officers. A handful of states, including Massachusetts, have prioritized vaccinations for prisoners, but many states have failed to vaccinate their high-risk prison populations. Nationwide, fewer than one in five state and federal prisoners have been vaccinated, according to data collected by the Marshall Project and the Associated Press. We're joined today by four guests to discuss the question of vaccinating incarcerated people in Vermont. Jim Baker is the Commissioner of Corrections in Vermont. Dr. Simi Ravin is the President of the Vermont Medical Society. Mike Fisher is the chief healthcare advocate at the Vermont Legal Aid, and he's a member of the COVID-19 Vaccine Implementation Advisory Committee. And Stefan Gillum is president of the Wyndham County chapter of the NAACP. I began by asking Corrections Commissioner Baker why Vermont is not prioritizing prisoners to get vaccinated against COVID-19. You know, the, the bottom line was early on, there was not enough vaccine. And we made the decision setting priorities when vaccines came that we would look at our security staff that works inside facilities. Um, And that was about 591 of the staff. And realizing the fact that because of our protocols, the only way the virus is gonna get into the facilities is from the outside, um, from people coming from the outside. We've shut down all visitation and movement in and out of the facilities as part of the protocol over the last year. So we made the decision to do staff first. And um, staff, um, we identified 591 staff and we vaccinated 467, which is about um, a 79, 80% um, compliance rate with our staff. And then as the vaccines freed up, I think the misnomer is, uh, the conversation in the community is, we are vaccinating it. And as of today, um, we have offered vaccinations to 791 of the population of 1,234 and and, um, 565 of the inmates, excuse me, 585 of the inmates have been vaccinated with at least the first shot. Um, About 206 have refused, which I'm concerned about, and that we plan on having all 
inmates and staff offered the vaccination um, by um, April 19th. And um, we have been working on it. As the vaccinations became more available in the state, we started moving along the process to vaccinate um, the incarcerated population. So I understand that prisoners are in the same line that all Vermonters are in. They come up when their age band comes up. Um, but last week, the governor opened uh, vaccines to all BIPOC Vermonters. Has that also been extended to BIPOC prisoners? Yes, it has. And uh, we are in the process, and if we have not completed, um, we're close to completing um, the first round of vaccination for self-identifying BIPOC population inside our facilities. Do the vaccinators come to the prison? How does it work? Our, we, have a, we, uh, we have a $20 million healthcare system inside the system. We have a contractor that provides healthcare and working in collaboration with our medical team, which is uh, our state employees that oversee the healthcare contract, um, our healthcare provider, VitalCore, and with the Vermont Department of Health, um, that coordination is going on. And that's how the vaccinations are being delivered, both to our staff and to the incarcerated population. Will the state mandate that prison guards be vaccinated? No. Uh, why won't the uh, state mandate that corrections officers be vaccinated? Because they have rights just like you, David. I mean, I, I think that people need to understand that corrections officers and people that work in corrections have a constitutional right, just like you have a constitutional right to make your decision about if you want to be vaccinated or not. Now, in Newport, uh, it was uh, revealed in, in mid-March that uh, a little over 60% of corrections officers had been vaccinated there. Has that changed? I don't know the exact number because um, since we started vaccination at the sites, some of our employees have made the decision they wanted to go off-site to get the vaccinations. We don't track that. That's uh, personal health care information that we do not track. So I, I don't have a way of knowing uh, and uh, who has decided to go elsewhere to get vaccinated. That number we gave in mid-March was based upon the number of folks that we vaccinated on site with the health department, our health care provider. And in fact, the EMS community did a big piece of the vaccination of our staff. Stefan Gillum, uh, president of the Wyndham County NAACP, you and your colleague Mia Schultz from the Rutland chapter of the NAACP wrote a letter in mid-March expressing serious concerns about the state policy around vaccinating prisoners. What are your concerns? Yeah, so our concerns were that um, people who were incarcerated were being left out of the story. Um, and that happens a lot, not just here in Vermont, but just nationally. I mean, folks of, especially folks of color who are in uh, the incarceration system or the criminal justice system as a whole are left out of the story. So. We really wanted to advocate and do what the NAACP does best and raise the voices for those who we felt like didn't have an avenue to advocate for themselves. At that time, we heard nothing. Uh, we had heard nothing, really, about plans to vaccinate or to care for uh, folks um, who were incarcerated. But we were hearing about stories of um, uh, breakouts, outbreaks. And we were hearing about uh, from family members who were feeling the elements of that and concern, right? And so 
we thought it was important to raise that issue and to bring it to light. And I really do think that that advocacy is why uh, we are sitting here now with some of the changes that we that that we have uh, now. And I also want to just add to that that this was more than this was about more than just the people who were incarcerated at the moment. This was about the people who were going through probation, parole, uh, prison, uh, you know, in prisons in the state and in and in the um, and all in all of the jail and prison levels because those folks are all connected to the system. And what we're really trying to combat, and what we're really trying to point out with the mindset, and we're trying to restory how we even looked at this. Because if you were connected to that system, then it seemed like you were being told that you're um, that you didn't matter as much. And that's what we really were trying to push back against. Do you believe that the state should prioritize vaccinating prisoners and corrections officers? I do. I do believe that because, uh, you know, unlike um, all of us who can get up right now and leave this interview and go and enjoy the beautiful sunshine or socially distance the way we want to, others don't really have that right. You know, um, they are confined. And so I do believe that the situation is different. And I think that we have to look at that difference and look at how, you know, folks who are living in those situations would feel about that. And I do believe that, that they should be um, that, that they should be vaccinated and they should be prioritized. You made the point in your letter, Stefan, uh, you wrote that African-Americans are at greater risk of death from COVID-19 and Vermont is among the highest in the nation for the incarceration of black people with one in 14 currently imprisoned. Can you just say something about the disparity that you see in, in those incarceration rates? Yeah, so, I mean, the incarceration rates are high. We all know that. I think that's a, st a statistic that we have heard multiple times throughout the state, and sometimes it fluctuates. I hear 13, I hear 14. But at the end of the day, we're only 1% of the population when we're talking about Black Vermonters. And so that is a huge difference in, in population. Um, I was on prisonpolicy.org. I, I think that they're a really good um, place to consolidate, to look at consolidated data, and they give Vermont a D minus. In, in the way that we've handled some of these situations. Now, mind you, a lot of states got very bad grades, so we're among, we're among friends there, but, but we could do better, and we know that we can do better, and we can do better by our black and brown populations. Uh, Dr. Ravin, uh, you have been critical of the state's approach to vaccinating inmates. Explain what your concerns are. Sure. Um, so first, thank you for, for having me here. Um, at the Vermont Medical Society, we were really um, looking at mounting concern that being incarcerated was uh, in and of itself a risk factor for contracting COVID. Um, and one of our missions at the Vermont Medical Society is to advocate for the health of Vermonters generally and um, for, uh, for our communities. And we were seeing increasingly that um, people who are incarcerated um, across the nation are at greater risk of contracting COVID. And while we were seeing that, we were seeing the outbreak here in Vermont. Um, and I myself and my colleagues were wondering, when are we gonna prioritize incarcerated Vermonters for vaccine? Um, I, I very much appreciate Commissioner Baker's um, uh, thoughtful and deliberate efforts and that of the um, Governor Scott and the administration. And I think that, uh, it, frankly, that we can do a lot more. 
um, the approach of vaccinating, initially we had very limited vaccine um, as a nation and in Vermont and the approach of vaccinating correctional staff, I think is a good first step or has been a good first step. But um, as the data mounted, we really saw that being incarcerated was a risk for contracting COVID. Uh, and nationally, we saw that people who were incarcerated were at risk, not just of, not a greater risk, not just of contracting COVID, but of dying from it. So I think that um, we uh, are on the path now to getting people who are incarcerated vaccinated, but we could have prevented a lot of uh, disease and its sequelae if we'd identified that group earlier and prioritized their vaccination earlier. Well, also you've noted that it, this isn't just an issue of what happens inside the correctional facilities. Uh, there have been outbreaks, corresponding outbreaks in the communities that host these facilities. What do we know about that? That's right. Um, I actually had, it was something of an aha moment and I'll tell you a little bit about the context. Um, uh, back in uh, February, I slipped and broke my ankle and I was home and reading lots of, uh, as I'm sure lots of us uh, uh, struggle with uh, the ice and snow and was home reading medical journals and had more time to do that. And I was reading a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine that um, uh, actually one of my um, uh, idol, idols in public health uh, co-authored about um, vaccination and decarceration to stop COVID-19. Um, and that person I referenced is Paul, Paul Farmer, who's done a lot of really important public health work. And one of the points in that piece was really that even though people are by definition locked into correctional facilities, they're not islands. There are people going in and out um, both uh, prisoners and correctional officers. Uh, so uh, what we see is spread back and forth of um, COVID-19 between adjacent communities and correctional settings. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And some of them we can mitigate and some of them we can't. Um, first, there's incomplete uptake of vaccine. Uh, some of that is what people elect to do. Some of that is, um, some people have prohibitions to taking the vaccine. Uh, we know that, or we have a good indication now that the vaccine can decrease risk of transmission of COVID, but there is still uh, risk of transmission among vaccinated people. Um, and there's probably existing COVID uh, virus within correctional settings before introduction of vaccine. So they're not sealed environments. Right. Uh, Mike Fisher, you served on a COVID-19 vaccine implementation advisory committee. And that on that committee uh, issued a letter in mid-March urging, uh, well, quoting from the letter, uh, it says, we call on the administration to immediately amend its vaccination policies to provide access to COVID-19 vaccines to all incarcerated individuals in its care. Um, how does... Talk about what this committee is, and was this, uh, obviously the state did not take you up on that uh, recommendation. Have other recommendations from the committee uh, also not been taken up by the state? So uh, thank you, David, and it's good to be here. And and before I say anything, I, I think it's really important to, to do a shout out and, and recognize that there's 
tremendous heroic work on the part of many people in state government, Department of Health, I'm sure in corrections as well, doing their best in an impossible situation. So before I be critical, I want to do a shout out and, and recognize how difficult this is. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the Vaccine Advisory Committee did take a stand. It was maybe one of the stronger stands that we took um, with a recognition of many of the things that have been articulated already today uh, about the risk to the community, about the um, uh, the ability of inmates to do the social isolation um, 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 requirements that the governor came every week and told us we were supposed to do, um, and um, and and further, I, to make the point that we have a special duty. These are people in our custody, and um, and so it's a different dynamic, I think. Um, but I'll give one example of another issue that came before us that many people advocated for, uh, you know, after the initial, hey, let's really focus on severe illness and death. In other words, do over 75-year-olds. Um, as we moved sort of past that phase, other voices came forward. For instance, people with developmentally disabled kids um, or people, with, uh, 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 children, adult children, or, on, or advocating for them, making the argument, hey, hey, here's a population that's harder um, to, to get to take the precautionary steps that they needed to take. And, um, and so I think there's something of an analogy here. And I think the, the administration recognized that, uh, made an exception from the age banding and said, hey, here's a population we need to uh, make sure we offer vaccines to. And uh, I think there's an analogy. I think it's a totally different dynamic. I'm, uh, um, um, but there is a similarity that here's a population of people who are at, at higher risk um, and have a harder time really doing the stuff that, that we would ask of them. Commissioner Baker, um, I guess one of the things that I find surprising about this is Governor Scott has uh, staked a, a lot of uh, you know his own political capital over the course of the last year by saying that we must follow the science. And we've seen around the country that other governors uh, have not done that. And this seems, and we know, you know, we've, we've heard from the people on this panel, but the CDC and others about the importance of prioritizing uh, and how the science does suggest that prisoners and corrections officers be prioritized. But Governor Scott seems to have carved out one exception, and that is for the inmates themselves. Uh, so that's what I find surprising here. Um, why do inmates have, and, and in fact, since you have prioritized corrections officers, why wouldn't prisoners have been grouped with that in recognition of their special status if we're following the science? Well, first of all, David, we are following the science. Um, we, we have not, we're the only state in the country without a death in the system. Now, some of that's by the grace of God. Going back to, and I, and I want to thank Michael for, for calling out the fact that <clears throat> state employees, including, um, you know, the thousand employees in my department had worked tirelessly on this issue. And um, Michael referred to, they're in our custody. Well, what the statute says, they're in my custody. My custody, the Commissioner of Corrections. I take that very seriously. I talk to loved ones of inmates all the time. And uh, I take it very seriously that I have an obligation to protect those inmates in my custody. So I wanna make sure that I'm clear on this. We are following the science. We're one of the four states in the country that recently got called out in a study 
that was funded by the MacArthur Foundation and others as leading the country in testing inside our facilities. We test to suppress. The situation in Northern was an outlier. We knew if we got positive tests in Northern and for months we didn't get them. The nature of that facility, doors do not lock there. They're shared bathrooms. We knew we were gonna have a challenge on our hands if, if the virus got inside the facility. And I agree with, with the doctor, the science shows um, that communities that have higher spread, and if you take a look at when this outbreak happened, the Northeast Kingdom had a higher community spread. And there is a connection between it. And so we haven't had anybody, no inmates really sick inside our system. And we do follow the science. And I gotta emphasize that, you know, since the end of March, we are stepping up vaccination. I mean, we are two thirds of the way through vaccinating um, inmates right now. And uh, what I'm really concerned about is the refusal rate of the inmates. There's 209 inmates that have refused to take the vaccination. And as we, gotta, we gotta figure out a way to convince them that they can trust us, that we're providing medical care to them for their safety. And- um, can I just jump in? Yes, go ahead, sir. Can I just jump in and just make a statement? Um, you know, that really comes to me right out of, of today's conversation. And, and that is uh, for a uh, correctional officer who's chosen not to be vaccinated, to be caring for a, uh, an inmate who has not been offered the vaccine is, I don't know what adjective to put on it. It's really bad. And, and I understand your statement about um, wanting to, uh, about the rights of the correctional officer, uh, those correctional officers should be reassigned. Well, if I, if I had the staff, sir, I would do that. Um, uh, but you know, I, I have to balance that. It's, I, 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 I cannot, um, I cannot disagree with you, but we're not the only ones. Um, you know, if you follow the news, there's other, other very high risk environments where people are not being vaccinated. And I can't, I cannot agree with you more. But if I had I, the staff, I'd reassign them. Dr. Ravin. I think this, thank you. I think this raises a really interesting debate and one that's coming up in healthcare and hospital settings a lot. Um, we're talking about this at the Medical Society and other settings about uh, um, mandating vaccine among hospital workers and some. Um, there have been a few hospital systems that are taking that up. And it's a really interesting debate about safety of those um, served and individual rights of people employed in, in settings with people who are vulnerable uh, to the virus. Um, I also wanna, the inmates in Vermont, Vermont isn't the only place we incarcerate people. Uh, we have out of state prisoners as well. Can you tell us Commissioner Baker, what is happening? What do you know about Vermonters who are incarcerated out of state in terms of COVID and vaccinations and infections? So um, we, have, we, have, we do have inmates out of state that are housed in Tallahatchie, Mississippi, the, the uh, facility there. And um, I believe the number of folks that we have in the facility there is now around 164 plus or minus. Mm -hmm. um, 90, 91 of those folks have been vaccinated. Um, about 10 have refused vaccinations and they continue to vaccinate individuals there based upon um, the age bands. What do you know about uh, COVID infections among out-of-state Vermont prisoners? 
So we, we had we had an outbreak last summer in August at that facility. And uh, as a result of that, um, we put in some some very clear guidelines with the contractor that runs the facility to include we we now have the ability to monitor um, the facility remotely with video camera and to make sure that um, folks are in compliance with masking and cleaning and so on. And so uh, we're in regular conversation with them about it. We have had no other uh, no other outbreaks in that facility um, since. I spoke to a family member of an incarcerated Vermonter who said that the uh, the inmates feared being put in uh, solitary confinement in isolation if they were, uh, you know, to say that they had symptoms of COVID. Is that a common practice that inmates are put in solitary if they have COVID, if they're positive? You, you know, um, this is a matter of um, how you term things, right? Um, and I, I hear this often about solitary confinement. Um, we, we put people in medical isolation if they're positive. Going back to, to Dr. Rowan's point about um, coming into the facility, um, we, we quarantine people coming into the facilities if they're a new entry into the system. Um, and they, th th it is isolation. And uh, I have heard that um, several times from families and through our Office of Constituency Services I've heard that often. Um, I don't know how true that is, but we ask our medical staff to be in touch with people to make sure that um, if, if they're exhibiting symptoms that we know that. Now, when we have an outbreak like we had in Northern, we step up, we brought in outside traveling nurses and so on. And um, folks that were positive were checked on a regular basis for O2 saturation, temperature, and other signs of um, their illness escalating. So I, I can't I can't talk specifically to what a family member may have told you. I've heard that before, and uh, I, I don't know how true that is. Hmm. Um, Mike Fisher, in your role as the chief healthcare advocate at Vermont Legal Aid, what are some of the you know concerns you are hearing most from people who are interacting with the correction system in this time of the pandemic? Um, well, uh, honestly, we, we hear more from regular from from all Vermonters than we do from people within corrections. I think uh, inmates tend to go to prisoners' rights and uh, and other entities. But but you know, there's long-standing issues with people transitioning from corrections out into the community and having their care not interrupted, having their medications be maintained. Um, you know, um, we from time to time do have cases. Uh, uh, with those kinds of concerns. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. I want to thank all of you uh, for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Mike Fisher, Chief Healthcare Advocate of Vermont Legal Aid, uh, Stefan Gillum, President of the Wyndham County Chapter of the NLACP, and Dr. Cindy <coughs> Raven, President of the Vermont Medical Society, and Department of Corrections Commissioner Jim Baker. Thanks, all of you, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.